You're listening to Ideas at the House, a podcast from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby and I head up the Talks and Ideas program. And over the next few months, we'll be bringing you an excellent collection of live recordings from Antidote 2017, our brand new festival of art, action and ideas. Today, passionate activist and queen of the vaginas, playwright Eve Ensler, graced the stage at Antidote to discuss 20 years of her landmark play, The Vagina Monologues. She's in conversation with journalist Van Badham. I'd like to share my own story about the vagina monologues. I was an undergraduate at the University of Wollongong when I came into contact with the play for the first time. Performed on a stage in our own rickety campus cafe by my friend Charlotte Hodges, known as Chucky, the first lesbian officer at the University of Wollongong. A beautiful young woman in her power with the platform to say the word cunt in public for the very first time. It was transformational, and for all of you who have been touched by this incredible piece of art, I'm sure you understand just how overwhelmed I am to be present for Eve Ensler today. Please welcome her to the stage. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Well, that was a totally humbling introduction. Thank you so much. Um, I'm so happy to be here today in Sydney. Greetings, my sisters and brothers. Um, I'm really thrilled to be back in Sydney because the last time I was here was over five years ago where we launched One Billion Rising from Sydney, and I was honoured to speak at a human rights um, gathering um, with Andrea Durbach, who's here tonight. And... um, We launched One Billion Rising here, and for those of you who don't know what it is, I imagine many of you do, it's a global campaign that we started five years ago, which really invites women and men um, uh, to dance and rise with their bodies, with their spirits, to end violence against women around the world. And I have to say, in the first year, 200 countries joined and millions and millions of people danced, and it's now gone on and we're in our sixth year. The the campaign grew out of the fact that one out of three women will be beaten or raped in their lifetime, which is both a UN and a World Health Organization statistic. So the city holds a really dear place in my heart. Um, And I'm really very happy tonight that we're blessed to have the global director, Monique Wilson, here tonight from the Philippines. So just please welcome her. And I really want to acknowledge all the thousands of activists here who have been organizing risings of One Billion Risings for the last years. And although this is just a partial list, I want to give a shout out to organizers in Surrey Hills, Cogra, Noosa, Queensland, Queensland, Brisbane, uh, Melbourne, Victoria, Canberra, Western Sydney, Perth, and of course, Byron Bay. And I say that because we know the OBR season has begun when the women in Byron Bay strip off their clothes and dive into the sea. Um, They have challenged the world every year to be braver and freer. Um, Thank you for rising in this country to fight domestic violence, which impacts one out of three girls and women here over the age of 15. Thank you for rising for migrant women. And I was so moved yesterday to spend um, three hours with migrant women and immigrant women and domestic violence survivors But migrant women in this country receive lower wages and conditions and are afraid to speak out for losing their jobs, so thank you for rising for them. Thank you for rising for Aboriginal women, that their struggle and issue and histories be in the center of our consciousness. 
Thank you for rising for women with disabilities and immigrant women and refugees. And I also want to acknowledge all the V-Day activists here who've done hundreds of productions of the vagina monologues and have raised lots of money and consciousness to keep local shelters and hotlines alive in this country. Your work has made a huge difference in this country. It's a really complicated time to be celebrating the 20th anniversary of V-Day, the global movement to end violence against women. I think in my younger self, I was perhaps naive, overly enthusiastic, um, but I imagined the play and the movement at this point would have been redundant. <laughs> I guess it was my prayer that we would have eradicated patriarchy and thus stemmed the tide of violence against us. Um, I, I actually did believe that and I admit it because I wanted to believe that and I still need to believe that. But in fact, we are seeing a resurgence of toxic masculinity, fascism, racism, nationalism, xenophobia, and what I am now coming to call patriarchal side worldwide. Patriarchy, it seems to me, is a recurrent virus like herpes. It lives dormant in the body politic and is activated by toxic predatory conditions, like racism as well. Certainly in the US with an openly racist and misogynist predator in chief, we are in the midst of one of the greatest outbreaks of my lifetime. It is evident that as women steadily move forward to secure our rights, to have our voices heard, to demand equal pay for equal work, to raise ourselves out of poverty, to end the scourge of violence against us, to take leadership positions, the virus develops new and virulent strains to impede our progress. But I want to remind us that this aggressive outbreak and many of the outbreaks that are occurring in many countries of the world, including this one, was a reaction to our victories and our movement forward. We were winning. The first time I ever performed the vagina monologues, I was absolutely sure somebody would shoot me. It might be hard to believe, but 20 years ago, no one said the word vagina. Not in schools, not on TV, not even at the gynecologist. When mothers bathed their daughters, they referred to their vaginas as pookies or poochies or down theirs. So when I stood on stage in this little tiny theater way downtown in Manhattan um, to deliver the monologues I had written that were fictional monologues but based on interviews I had done with 200 women, it actually felt as if I were pushing through some invisible barrier and breaching a very deep taboo. I didn't get shot. At the end of each show, there would be long lines of women who wanted to talk to me. And at first, I was really excited. I thought, oh my god, I'm going to hear great stories of sexual satisfaction and wonderful orgasms and desire, and I'll learn new tricks. And, um, um, but the truth is, 95% um, of the women were lining up to anxiously tell me how and when they had been raped or harassed or assaulted or beaten or incested. I was shocked to see that once the taboo was breached, it released a torrent of memories, anger, and sorrow. And then something I never would have expected began to take place. The show was picked up by women all over the world who wanted to break the silence in their own communities. I never actually advertised for the Vagina Monologues. I never promoted it because it was too intensive thing. You couldn't bring that play to your community unless you wanted to bring that play to your community, unless you were brave. Um, there are so many things I could tell you about this wild, mystical vagina journey of the last 20 years, and it has been a wild journey. A journey that's taken me to over 70 countries to meet and know and love some of the most powerful women activist leaders and sexual pioneers on the planet, some of the greatest artists. 
This trip here has already allowed me to be, meet the extraordinary Van Batum, whose brilliance, humor, guts shine through every article she writes and every speech she makes. It's taken me to sex clubs and war zones and refugee camps and churches and brothels and prisons, hippie gardens, high-powered banks, huge coliseums, small towns, tribal villages, colleges, radical cafes, reservations, exotic islands, and some of the greatest theaters in the world. A journey that has been primarily directed and determined by grassroots women who have, through their efforts and productions, raised 100, over $100 million for local groups to end violence against women and girls. I could talk about four of the essential things we've learned, and th there are many more lessons, but I want to talk about how art has the power to transform thinking and inspire people to act, and how often theater and art can go places where political discourse cannot go, because we often get into dialectics and by lateral thinking, which keep us stuck going around in circles. I've learned that lasting social and cultural change is spread by ordinary people doing extraordinary things, and that local women know exactly what their communities need and want, and can become unstoppable leaders, and that nobody from outside any country should be determining what anybody inside any country is doing. And if you have the resources to provide women who are doing that work locally, give them the money, shut up and serve. We must look at the intersection of class, environment, environmental plunder, gender, imperialism, militarism, patriarchy, poverty, racism, and war to fully understand and eradicate violence against women. I could also talk about how our safe house in Kenya, which we opened, um, an amazing woman opened, Agnes Pariah, who is one of the most extraordinarily brilliant and brave women I've ever met, opened our first safe house in Kenya over 12 years ago. She is a woman who was cut. Um, she was female, generally mutilated herself when she was a child. And when I met Agnes, she was actually walking through the Rift Valley. Um, she had a box. It had a female um, um, torso inside it, uh, you know, an exhibition torso. And she, and she had vaginas and vagina replacement parts where she would teach all the Maasai in their communities what a mutilated vagina looked like and what a healthy one looked like. And because the Maasai are nomadic people um, and they build their um, beautiful homes out of cow dung, she would have to literally walk and then find new people and then walk. And she had been walking and walking for years and have saved thousands of women from being cut. And when we met Agnes 12 years ago, I said, what do you need? And she said, well, if you got me a Jeep, I could get around a lot faster. <laughs> so we first bought Agnes a Jeep, and in the first year, she saved thousands of girls, Maasai girls, from being cut. And then we said, well, what else? And she said, well, if you gave me money, I could open a house. And girls could run away, and they would be safe, and they wouldn't be cut, and then we could get them educated. And so 12 years ago, we found the resources to help Agnes open the first safe house to stop FGM in Kenya. And I have to say, it's 12 years later, and thousands of girls have not only been not cut, but she's stopped the practice in at least two-thirds of the Maasai community. Girls have been educated. She has transformed pain to power in ways I can't even begin to tell you. She actually, when she started, was exiled from the community and later was elected deputy mayor. And she's probably one of the strongest people in all of Narak. Um, I could tell you about the City of Joy, which I could literally talk about for the rest of the evening. Um, which is uh, an amazing center uh, for a sanctuary for healing and a revolutionary center that the women of Congo opened um, seven years ago 
As most of you know, the Congo has been the site for some of the greatest atrocities of the world because an economic war has been fought there for the last 14 years. Millions of people have died. Hundreds of thousands of women have been brutalized and mutilated for an economic war fought by multinationals um, using proxy militias to go in and steal basically the minerals that belong to the Congolese but have never been theirs. Minerals like tin and copper and gold and coltane, which goes into our iPhones and our Playstations. And I was invited to the Congo by a, an extraordinary man named Dr. Denis McGuege. Um, and he asked me to come to please help get out the word because nobody was coming to support or intervene in the thousands and thousands of women who were being raped and tortured. And when I went, I got to meet an extraordinary woman named Christine Schuler de Scriver, who was an amazing activist on the ground. And we spent weeks talking to women, asking them what they wanted. And what they most wanted was a place where they could be safe, where they could heal, where they could transform their pain to power. And so seven years ago, we opened City of Joy in Bukavu, um, where every six months, 90 women go. They are healed in the most beautiful group therapy I've ever seen that involves theater and dance, but also the deepest kind of purging of trauma. They learn their rights. They um, learn self-defense. They learn agriculture. And then they return to their communities as leaders to train and serve their communities and lift the women there. And uh, it is now seven years later, and we've graduated over 1,000 women. And it is unbelievable what is happening in those communities with these women leaders. We were also able to open four years ago an amazing farm, B-World Farm, which now um, employs 200 people where women come after City of Joy to learn agriculture and where we have nine tilapia ponds, um, pigs, rice. It's, it's an unbelievable, beautiful thing to see women whose bodies have been totally damaged and desecrated and, and where their relationship to the land has been completely ruined because they can't walk in the forest anymore because that's where the militias are to allow be back on the land growing and changing and being healed by their relationship to the earth. Um, I could tell you about how hundreds of women became activists and social justice workers as a result of producing and performing the play, or how many women went home and bought hand mirrors and vibrators <laughs> and looked at their vaginas for the first time and began to fall in love with them. Um, but I believe in stories, so I'm going to tell you a couple stories. Um, when I first started doing the vagina monologues, um, I did it in a little theater in, in New York, and then afterwards, all these brave, mad women invited me to their towns, and they didn't know what they were getting into. And um, I, I, it was very random. I'd be in, you know, Oklahoma one day, and the next day I'd be in, like, Jerusalem. And in and, and little tiny theaters, sometimes they weren't even theaters. I, don't, I wouldn't even know what to call them. But I was invited to Oklahoma City, and this woman was very brave, and she was very, she was very much from Oklahoma, and it, which is, you know, the heart of the Republican heartland. And it was a little warehouse, and... The second night word had gotten out about the play, and there were so many people arriving, they were pulling up with their own lawn chairs. And um, I was literally performing under what was essentially a light bulb. Um, and in the middle of the monologue, um, there was a great scuttling in the audience, and a young woman had fainted, so I stopped the show. And uh, the audience took care of the woman, fanning her and getting her water, and then she just stood up and declared, like straight out of her mouth, oh my God. I was raped by my stepfather. The audience hugged her and held her as she wept, and then at her request, I continued the show. And this was to repeat itself in city after city, 
where women would hear the play and these memories would just burst out of them and catalyze these things that they had never been able to tell anyone. Um, another memory is being in Islamabad, Pakistan, and where the show was banned. And again, these incredible, brave women did this covert production um, where Pakistani actors performed it in secret. And in the audience, women had traveled all the way from Taliban, Afghanistan. And men weren't allowed to sit in the audience, so they sat behind this white veil um, in the back. And during the performance, I just looked out at one point, and women were laughing and crying so hard their shadows were falling off. And I remember thinking, we all speak this universal language. It doesn't matter where we're from. Everyone knows, every woman knows what it means to have her sexuality repressed and what it means to be abused. I was recently, two years ago, in Haiti when the Haitian actors, these amazing actors, performed the vagina models at the Haitian parliament. When the play began, all the male parliamentarians came in. They weren't even wearing their jackets because they had no intention of staying. And they were hovering in the back with their arms folded. Um, by the end of the show, they had first row seats. And they couldn't move, and they were enthralled as one of the actors dressed in an S&M kind of outfit was thrashing them with a whip. Um, <laughs> I was at the European Parliament when nine members of the European Parliament performed the play. And um, it, was, it was this very echoey um, chamber. Uh, and at one point, I literally <laughs> watched nine members of the European Parliament moaning so loud that their echoes, their voices just echoed through the corridors of male power. <laughs> in the Philippines, um, when the, I was invited to the Philippines years ago, I was, it, it was performed in a stadium of 2,500 people. And I remember looking out, and there were nuns sitting in the first row. And they were laughing so hard. They were literally falling off their chairs. And um, uh, they had been trying to pass a law to stop um, violence against women for 30 years. And after they did the play at the Coliseum, they went and they performed it in Congress. And within weeks, that law got passed. I was in Mostar, Bosnia. Um, where the play really began um, in Bosnia during the war where I went to um, support and listen to the survivors of rape and tell their stories. And I was invited back after um, the war where Mostar was a town where there was this amazing bridge that had been destroyed. And on each side of the town, a bridge, there were Croats and Bosnians. And the audience for the performance was made up of both of them who had been slaughtering each other so recently that there was huge tension and uncertainty. And there's a piece in the play, um, My Vagina Was My Village, about a woman who was raped during the war. And when they started to perform the piece, the audience started to wail and scream and cry. The actors stopped. The audience members um, held each other and wept. And the Croats were holding Bosnians, and the Bosnians were holding Croats. And then the play resumed. And again, I was reminded that art has the power to transcend what we think we know about each other and what we tell ourselves we are supposed to say about each other. Um, I think it was in 2004, I was asked by a group of transgendered women um, if there was any possibility they could do a production of the Vagina Monologues, and I was thrilled to be asked. And I was invited up to this um, little cabin in, in California, where I spent um, four days with a group of 12 transgendered women who told their stories, who released their pain, who cried, who laughed, and then asked me if I would write a monologue to include their stories in the, in the, in the show. 
This led to the first all-trans women production where many trans women who had been leading stealth existences felt safe finally in the solidarity of the performance to speak out for the first time. And it was really a profound show. Another memory of being in Lansing, Michigan, a woman named Lisa Brown, a state representative, was reproached and silenced by the state legislature for using the word vagina in protesting a proposed bill restricting abortion. You're not allowed to use the word, she was told. So two days later, they called me, and I flew out to Lansing and joined Lisa Brown and 10 female House members on the steps of the State House for an emergency performance of the vagina monologues. <laughs> There were close to 5,000 women and men attending. It was mind-blowing. And I have to tell you, everyone was in such high spirits that orgasms, moans, were just like, and um, demanding that our bodies be permitted to be spoken of in our own democratic institutions, and that taboo was surely broken. So why is it important that we still talk about vaginas? because our vaginas are, in fact, the center of our energy, our life force, and our power. Because our sexuality has been repressed, depressed, oppressed, censored, mutated, and made sinful. Because the threat of rape and violence and ongoing attempts to shame us have robbed us of our vision, our voice, our dreams, our instincts, and our sisterhood. Because as Audre Lorde once wrote so eloquently in her astonishing piece, The Uses of the Erotic, she says, as women, we have come to distrust that power which rises from our deepest and non-rational knowledge. We have been warned against it all our lives by the male world, which values this depth of feeling enough to keep women around in order to exercise it in the service of men, but which fears the same depth too much to examine the possibilities of it within themselves. Of course, women so empowered are dangerous. Because what isn't said, end of quote, what isn't seen or said, what remains out of sight, is toxic and deadly. I have been obsessed, and I'm really glad I'm here to talk about this, with the refugees on Manus Island. I've been deeply haunted by a letter that hangs over my desk, written to the Prime Minister of Australia and a member of the Australian Parliament, and signed by 600 asylum seekers caught on Manus Island detention camp in Papua New Guinea. The letter reads, Hello, dear Malcolm Turnbull and Peter Dutton. As the refugees and asylum seekers trapped in Manus Island detention, we would like to request something different from you this time. As previously, we wrote and asked for help and there was no response to our request to be freed out of a detention. We realized that there are no differences between us and rubbish, but a bunch of slaves that helped to stop the boats by living in hellish conditions. The only difference is that we are very costly for the Australian taxpayers and the politicians as our job is to stop the boats is done. We would like to give you some recommendations to stop the waste of this huge amount of money ruining Australia's reputation and to keep the Australian borders safe forever. One, a Navy ship that can put us all on board and dump us all in the ocean. Two, a gas chamber. Three, inje injection of poison. This is not a joke or satire, and please take it serious. We are dying in Manus gradually every single day. We are literally tortured and traumatized, and there is no safe country to offer us protection, as the DIBP says. Best regards, Merry Christmas in advance. This letter and the refugees on Manus Island remind me every day that our work is to stop looking away, to say what is happening, to tell the truth, to go to places that are the most difficult and listen and pay attention to the stories that make us the most uncomfortable but most need to be heard. Manus Island is a horrific example of what happens when we don't push past fear, past denial, 
past neoliberal capitalist state where consumer individualism has left us atomized, privatized, desensitized, and in states of crippling loneliness and self-hatred, which allow for sanctioning and committing the deepest atrocities and violences. As I wrote in The Guardian during the dreadful election season, Trump is an outcome of so much we were unwilling to face in our own history whether it was racism or the desecration of the indigenous people who were here when the first white people landed in America. He grew from our somnolence, our denial, our disconnection from our bodies, our disconnection from the earth and each other, and his hate and his madness has the potential to be what finally unites us. It has already begun, in my opinion. In America, since his election, look at the millions of women who marched on Washington and around the world the thousands who refused the Muslim ban, the hundreds at town halls and the brave disabled women and men putting their bodies on the floors of Congress to save health care, the brilliant mayor, Catherine E. Pugh, who in the middle of the night without grandstanding just went out and removed the Confederate statues. Look at the journalists and activists, preachers, bloggers, comedians, senators, and ordinary folks speaking out, standing up, holding the moral center. Look at blessed Heather Heyer, who gave her life, or her astonishing mother, whose grace and moral center called us to the best parts of ourselves. Look at Rachel Maddow, and Joy Reid, and Ann Navarro, and Samantha Bee, and Barbara Lee, and Elizabeth Warren, Pramila Jayabal, Stacey Abrams, and Maxine Waters reclaiming her time. Look at them all speaking out at the Predator-in-Chief with ceaseless evidence, genius analysis, calm wisdom, or Sally Yates and the four judges who blocked the Muslim ban. In almost every single case, it is women. Emboldened, brilliant, brave women. Women who are out of the bottle and who are never going back in. Women who will not be deterred by those deeply broken ones afraid of losing their superiority. Women who hold the future in our bodies, in our beings. Our job until a cure for patriarchy and racist patriarchy is found is to create hyper-resistant conditions that build our immunity and make more outbreaks impossible. It starts where the vagina monologues and so many other radical feminist resistance acts begin, by speaking out, by saying what we see, by refusing to be silenced. They try to stop us even naming the parts of our private parts, our body parts. But here's what I've learned. If something isn't named, it doesn't exist. Now more than ever, it's time to tell the crucial stories and say the words, whether it's vagina or my stepfather raped me or the president is a predator and a racist. When you break the silence, you realize how many other people were waiting for permission to do the same thing. We and our vaginas will never be silenced again. So say it, vagina. Vagina! Thank you. <laughs> Had a cry, um, and and for me, it's the words "heather higher" is has become an avatar for everything that's so terrifying. And for us as as Australians, 
seeing our own horrors, and thank you so much for acknowledging the ongoing tragedy and abuse, which is Manus Island and Nauru and Australia's appalling um, recent record on refugees and asylum seekers. It is our national shame, and calling it out from this platform helps everybody in this room be part of that movement. But in the context where we are seeing what's happening in the United States, where the internet has brought us so close to our cousins, our, our shared English language giving us a, a proximity to what's going on there and, and the parallels and the similarities that we see in our own community, <coughs> Pauline Hansen, <coughs> Peter Dutton, um, the conversations you and I have been having have been that all of, all of this, the, the hoods and the hats and the the violence and the cruelty and, and the predator-in-chief, and he is a predator. He's a self-confessed predator. Mm -hmm. You think we're actually winning? I think we were winning. Uh, and I think the resistance is certainly here and real and holding them at bay. There's no doubt about it. They are also destroying right and left every single basic thing that we have fought for for the last 40 years of our lives. And that's happening simultaneously. You know, I think... You know, for a long time, I just kept thinking, okay, is, is you know, I, I, I really began to feel this long before Trump even got nominated, do you know? I felt this sense that women were really beginning to change, and, 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 and there was movement forward. And you could feel it in all kinds of sectors. And I think underneath that, look, even Obama, Obama getting elected was movement forward, right? And I think what happens is, when we don't address early wounds, early history, it's always lingering there to come back up and bite us and grab us. So America has never grappled with race. It's never grappled with civil rights in the deepest, deepest levels where people reckon, particularly white people, with their own privilege, with their own status, with their own reality and their own history. We've never had those deep reckonings that go down to the core of one's being and structure that really make sure things don't surface again. But I also think we haven't reckoned with the fact that there are people in America who are very poor, right? Who feel everything's been taken away from them as neoliberal capitalism machine has driven them over. And their rage is totally misdirected at women, at LGBT community, at the black community, but we haven't addressed what their lives are like either. So I think we're, we've come to this conflagration of every single thing happening simultaneously. And we have an opportunity, it seems to me, to either go down the drain or to really now say it is our reckoning. This is the moment where we deal with things that have to be dealt with in America. I've got to say, it's extraordinary when you're an Australian, you know, travelling in America doing these kind of events. It's the invisibility of the Indigenous community, and, and not because of that community, but sort of like this, this white compact to, to silence and erase the fact that America is also a colonial country. Like, it's, oh, yeah. it's on the land of a genocide, and there's no recognition, spoken acknowledgement at all. For an Australian, it's quite challenging. Yeah, for a lot of us in America, it's quite challenging. Only... Two years ago was Columbus Day redefined as Indigenous Peoples Day, right? But I, I think that's part of the story. There's, America is fabricated on lies and fantasy, right? There's, there are huge, there's a huge story of an American dream. Whose dream? Whose dream? Who's that, who's that dream been for? Who's, who's, who's benefited from that dream, right? 
it, it's a dream that's perpetuated through film and, 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 and ideology and commercials and brands. But if you go inside the country and you talk to people in the country, who's living that dream? But the dream is also something used by people against themselves, right? It's never the dream that failed. You failed the dream. Because so much about America is based on individualism and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and meritocracy. And if, if Oprah can do it, you can do it, right? <laughs> and, 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 and of course, we know there are a few exceptional people who can fight through and, 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 and rise above. But the majority of people have no opportunities, have no cushion, have no support, have no ability. And so that dream has failed them. And rather than saying the dream has failed, right? We have failed the dream, is what happens. I, I, I think I told you the story. I worked in a homeless shelter for eight years, uh, a, a women's shelter. And one day, I, I came into the shelter, and there were a group of women sitting on their bags, watching television, crying. And I was like, oh my god, what's going on? And they said, oh my god, we're so upset. Whitney is so thin. <laughs> I feel, and I, I, I went, wait, wait, wait. You're sitting on your homeless bags. Most of you have been sexually abused. You don't have any place to live. And you're crying for Whitney. You're weeping for Whitney. And what it was, was Whitney was the dream. The dream was actually more powerful than their literal reality that they were going through. That's how powerful the dream is. It, it, it's so big. It's, you know, it's, it's on a huge screen. It's, it's branded into the products. It's, 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 it's in commercials. It's, it's so all-powerful. And so what I think has to happen is that we have to say, is this a dream that we're all behind? <laughs> is this the dream we believe in? Is this the dream we want? Is, is the dream of 0.1% of the people having everything while 90% of the people are in suffering and struggle and poverty and, and violence our dream? You know? And we're at that critical cross point. Um, in the discussions you and I have been having, we've been talking a lot about the resistance movements and that you know, there are some incredible uh, dialogues and narratives and contributions that are being made as part of that resistant community um, about race, about gender, um, ab about the diversity of sexuality, all of these things. And yet there is a real reticence to talk about class. And when we talk about intersectionality, it, there seems to be this blind spot in talking about structures of economic participation and how that compounds like oppression for people. I, the statistic I'm always reminded of is that uh, trans women of colour are the most underemployed people in the community. 60% of trans women of colour are unemployed at any particular time. You know, there are economic structures that, that consolidate and structuralise people's oppression, but struggling with that economic narrative is, is problematic for people. I think it's so bizarre because and other I think about America in class so, so often, like all the time. And last year during One Billion Rising, our whole focus was on solidarity against the exploitation of women. So a, a lot of the focus in many countries, and particularly in America, was looking at what working women were struggling with, right? Violence on the workplace, low wages. Um, and it was so fascinating to see how we live in such a class-bound country, but with no visibility with no intellectual awareness of that class-boundness, you know? And we were, at one point, we, there was a group of um, restaurant workers, you know, we were talking about what it's like for 
for restaurant women, women working in restaurants. And for those of you who don't know, the, the salary for restaurant workers has stayed the same in America for the last 30 years. It's 2.13 cents an hour. And so most waitresses... She's not making that up. It is 2.13 yeah. cents an hour. And waiters are, waitresses you know, rely on tips. So, of course, sexual harassment is the highest in the restaurant industry than it is in any industry in America because women have to tolerate people grabbing them and, and saying horribly degrading things to them in order to get tips. So we, we were talking about this, and then I would be talking to other people outside of the restaurant worker community who had been waitresses, who had been waitresses. Why aren't you in this struggle for waitresses? And what happens in America is this notion that once you've gotten out of that, you're, you're, you don't want to be contaminated. You don't want to be pulled back into that. You don't want to reach back and say, oh God, I, I was able to get a better job or move to a different level of income, and now my job is to reach back and pull the next one. It's almost as if, if you reach back, you'll be pulled back. And I saw that also when I work with homeless people. There's, there's a, this, this notion somehow that if you're around people who are struggling or around people who are poor, you're around people who are having a difficult time, you'll get it, like it's a virus, mm. right? And I think part of that is because we've all been made to believe in this rugged, you can do it by yourself, you, you don't need anybody else, which denies collectivism, which denies systemic realities, which denies what are the systems that are keeping people in place, not the individuals who are struggling to find their ways out of situations. I feel the need to throw in another statistic. Um, there was a survey done on hospitality workers in Australia recently. 19% of women who work in hospitality have been sexually assaulted at work. So, I mean, obviously, the conditions here are different, and we fought very hard to retain our union rights, our organising rights, despite incredible opposition from our government, which is why our minimum wages are better and our industrial protections are better, though they're constantly under attack, spoiler alert, this week in the parliament. Um, but you and I have been talking about the difference in the language around being an ally and what solidarity means. And where do you see that distinction between allyship and solidarity? Well, I have never liked the word ally, um, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. I, it, it reminds me of the word tolerant, you know. Um, to me, both those words are hierarchical words, right? Like, I've always thought about the fact that all the years I've worked to end violence against women and girls, like, how did this become a woman's issue? How did this become our issue? It turns out we're not raping ourselves, okay? <laughs> all right? All right, so I've always thought, like, how did the burden of it come back on us? And it's the same thing with racism. How did struggling against racism become a black person's issue? It's actually a white person's issue. We are the white, we, the, the white race is the racist, you know. And it's pretty racist, man. Yeah, it, it certainly is. So you, you think, so what, I, what, what I, I've been thinking about lately is, what is the difference between calling yourself an ally and being in solidarity? First of all, being an ally implies that you're helping somebody with their problem, right? It's actually not their problem, it's our problem. That's number one. Being in solidarity means that we are in this struggle. We are in it, we have embraced it. We are giving our lives and everything in our beings to this struggle. In the same way that the difference between tolerate and embrace or tolerate and love is I tolerate who you are. I'm in the position to tolerate you. I'm in the superior position, well, I will let you know whether it's okay how you behave, as opposed to, I am in this with you. 
and I will put myself as far out as I can go to transform whatever the suffering is, whatever the oppression is, whatever the inequality is. And I think right now white people are really being called upon to rise to a whole new level, particularly in America. You know, we have got to make ending racism our primary issue. Mm -hmm. It's got to be, no, we're not going to get to that later. We're going to get to that now. And I think, you know, looking at Charlottesville and seeing how many people, white people came out to stand up, how many white people in Boston, it's a beginning. But it happens in our everyday lives. It happens when you have platforms that you don't share. It happens when you have um, experiences where you're having at a conference, for example, and you don't see any people of color at that conference, and you don't say, why aren't there people of, of color at the you have to, it, it, it's in every little facet of our lives to bring consciousness to that. And I think, I guess I, I, I feel this so deeply in, from last year in, in One Billion Rising, that solidarity to me is when we're not separating ourselves from this is your struggle, this is my struggle. Like, your struggle is my struggle, right? And, and where my risk is as high or higher than your risk. You know, in that situation. And I think it requires, and if we're going to survive as a human species, we've got to raise consciousness to a level of solidarity that we're taking the risks we most don't want to take, right? We're going to the places mm. we fear the most. We're stepping out in, in, in ways that are most uncomfortable. It's my favourite line from Dune, go to that place where you dare not look, you will see me staring back at you. Yeah. Um, I'm going, to take, I'm going to take just one or two questions because I could seriously talk to Eve all day and I have the privilege of probably being able to do that, but you won't be able to. A question, number one, number two, if you want to dart. If not, I'll just keep asking the questions. Anyone, anyone? No one at the microphone. So in terms of where we are now, like you have an audience of people who connect to your work and connect to the mission of your work and the sense of service in your work. What is the instruction you're giving to this audience today about when they leave the theatre, what are they going to do? Well, we had an amazing meeting yesterday with a lot of activists, incredible activists in Sydney, Asian women at work, immigrant women, migrant women, domestic violence advocates, um, people from the Women's March in Sydney, and there was a real desire to bring One Billion Rising together and do a huge rising this year in Sydney for the various struggles that people are struggling for. So that's one very specific thing people can get involved with. But I think, I, I, I just know for me right now, like, I don't know about you, but I wake up every day and I'm more horrified than the day before. Like, I just, I feel like we're being steadily traumatized every single day. And I think we can go either re into the retreat mode where we withdraw and we get depressed and we get panicked and we don't want to have anything to do with it, or we can find ways to keep our bodies alive, whether it's by dancing, whether it's by sharing, whether it's by doing good things for our bodies so that we keep moving forward towards the people on Manus Island, the people who are most disappeared, the most marginalized, most invisibilized. And I think that has to do with having groups of people that you are organizing with, because we can't do it alone. Do you know, I, I, I think what neoliberal capitalism does to so many of us is it makes us lonely, it makes us apart, it excludes us. It, it's the overwhelming loneliness and the sense that we are absolutely powerless to change our environment. I think everybody needs, needs a posse, everybody needs a group, everyone needs some group that you're working with all the time that inspires you to go out 
and say, what are we going to, what are we going to revolt against today? What are we going to resist today? What are we going to put our focus on to make the world better for somebody who, who may not be privileged enough to do that, who may be struggling with families so they can't fight for their fight? And to look around and see where are the people who are being disappeared, who are being marginalized, who are being erased in, 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 in the structure. Um, and, then, and then the last thing I, I think is, you know, I think we cannot allow the, the, the forces of darkness that are spreading around this world to take away our joy, to take away our ecstasy, to take away our connection to each other. And I think one of the things that first goes is joy, it, which is our life force, is our sexuality. And I think the way we do that is through art and, and, and creation and writing songs and listening to music and, and developing poetry and speaking out and finding ways to transmute that darkness into something that can transform people's consciousness into a higher level. Because I think if we stay stuck on this, I said, you said, left, right, we just get into hating, 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 but when we bring it to a higher level, something begins to get discharged and we can begin to listen to each other and connect to each other. Right. Uh, we have a question here. G'day. And it's got to be a question, otherwise I will do the Tony Jones explosion. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, g'day. Um, yes, last time I met you was at the Sydney Writers' Festival. I was in a, a queue and there was a lady, Asian lady in front of me who literally broke down when she was talking to her. And I know you comforted and counselled her and it showed how much power there was in talking about this kind of stuff. I know you've been doing that. My question actually is in terms of the 20 years you've been doing this. I know you've travelled all over the world. I just wanted to know what your experiences are of different kinds of prejudice against women in different parts of the world, different cultures. I mean, you have Japanese manga where they have sort of pictures of vaginas with teeth on it that attack people. And, you know, obviously with the Arabic world, you have the more repressive and you know, there's very different kinds. So just wondering if you could talk us about some of the more extreme reactions you maybe have had to the vagina monologues and to your activism from around the world. Thank you. Um, it's an interesting question, you know, uh, I, I just want to say, patriarchy is universal. It, it turns out it's everywhere. And every culture has its own really inventive way of expressing it, right? Um, but the truth of the matter is, I could not tell you that one country is worse or better than any other country, because every country is propagated on the notion that women's sexuality should be repressed, that women are second-class citizens, that women shouldn't be equal, that they shouldn't have equal rights. And it, it, it's, it's fascinating how people are always talking about over there, right? It's always bad over there. Well, the truth of the matter is I've never gone to one country that embraced the vagina when it entered town, right? I never can tell you, and, and, and places like you think, oh, Paris, Paris is so liberated. Paris is one of the last places that could do the vagina monologues, okay? Greece did it before, Turkey did it before Paris, okay? So all the assumptions we make you know, there are patches of liberated people in every country, but the majority of countries in this world are still living under the, the complete um, bell jar of patriarchy. And I think um, it's really kind of both very terrifying to know that, but there's also something comforting about it, because then we can build global solidarity across borders without saying, your customs are worse, you're more sexist than we are. No, guess what, we're all sexist. The whole world is sexist. And that means the whole world can be liberated because we are all in the struggle together. Yeah, dude, The Handmaid's Tale is frightening because it's about us. Yeah. Um, I'm going to take a quick question. There's a woman at a microphone here. 
We're going to run slightly over everybody you have been warned. Hello, if I'm Suni. Thank you for your work. Um, I work with families and I have a question for you specifically. How would you support parents in now raising girls and boys specifically to um, support this issue? It's a really good question and I could talk to you forever about it, but I'm going to do a short version. First of all, um, tell your daughters that they have vaginas and vulvas and clitorises and teach them what they are and bring them up loving their bodies. And the same with boys. Um, what I really think is what patriarchy, and I say this all the time, has done to men in some ways is much more destructive than what it's done to women because we've, allowed to, we've been allowed to keep our hearts. Um, I think the way we bring up boys, and I think everybody is responsible for this, is to teach them that they need to know everything when they don't know everything, that they should never have feelings, that they should man up, they should never be to express their tenderness or their gentleness or their vulnerability, that they should never cry. And I think the minute you tell a boy he shouldn't cry, you basically are setting him up to be a misogynist. You're basically creating a patriarchy in that moment. Because when you kill off feelings in people, you kill off their ability to feel compassion and to feel connection, right? You're actually beginning the process of militarization that will follow in every step of their life. And I think if we bring up our boys and when they cry, we actually hold them and we allow them to have their feelings, guess what? They will have long-term life force, where when they are having sex with a girl and a girl says, stop, they will actually feel what she's feeling, and they will know that they cannot go further because they would be hurting her, and that hurting her would be hurting them, because they won't be disconnected from their hearts. And I think we're all responsible for saying to boys on the, you know, when they're at the, you know, in the play, in the, in the sandbox, don't cry. Don't show that you're a girl. Don't be a girl. Don't be a girl. Every single person on this planet is told not to be a girl. Men are told not to be girls. Girls are told not to grow. It must be very powerful to be a girl if we're all being told not to be girls. <laughs> Do you know? You know? So I say, everybody be a girl. Everybody be a boy. Everybody be everything. And embrace it. And I think really and truly at the core of everything is our hearts. And when we're cut off from our hearts, we are able to do atrocious things to people. And we are destroying our boys in every country of the world by cutting off their hearts. Um, we're going to, to finish with a bit of a bang. James, bring us the stool, please. <laughs> yes, it's interesting to hear about, you know, a, a poster of a vagina with teeth, because personally I connect to that quite aspirationally. <laughs> All right, I'm going to close with a monologue. Um, I'm a little rusty, so bear with me. But um, I really think right now where we're living in these times, um, and I really feel this every single day, that our sexuality and our life force is what is going to get us through where we are. And so much of religion, so much of culture, so much as everything is constantly telling women, particularly not to be connected to our bodies, not to be connected to our, our energy field. But there's so much there that I've discovered over the last 20 years that has to do with our creativity, our imagination, our intuition, our magic, our magic, where things can happen that you can't explain. So I'm going to close tonight with the, the woman who loved to make vaginas happy. And th there'll be a little twist at the end that you'll see. 
I love vaginas. I love women. I do not see them as separate things. Women pay me to dominate them, to excite them, to make them come. I did not start out like this, no. To the contrary, I started out as a lawyer, but in my late 30s, I became obsessed with making women happy. There were so many unfulfilled women, so many women who had no access to their sexual happiness. It began as a mission of sorts, but then I got involved in it. I got very good at it, kind of brilliant. <laughs> it was my art. I started getting paid for it. It was as if I had found my calling. Tax law seemed completely boring and insignificant then. <laughs> I wore outrageous outfits when I dominated women, lace and silk and leather. I used props, whips, handcuffs, ropes, dildos. There was nothing like this in tax law. There were no props, no excitement, and I hated those blue corporate suits, although I wear them from time to time now in my new line of work, and they serve quite nicely. <laughs> Context is everything. There were no props, no outfits in corporate law. There was no wetness. There was no dark, mysterious foreplay. There were no erect nipples. There were no delicious mouths, but mainly there was no moaning. Not the kind I'm talking about anyway. This was the key. I see now that moaning was the thing that ultimately seduced me and got me addicted to making women happy. When I was a little girl, I would see women in the movies making loves, making strange, orgasmic moaning noises. I used to laugh. I got strangely hysterical. I couldn't believe that big, outrageous, ungoverned sounds just came out of women. I longed to moan. I practiced in front of my mirror on a tape recorder, moaning in various keys, various tones, with sometimes very operatic expressions, sometimes very reserved, almost withheld. But always, when I played it back, it sounded fake. It was fake. It wasn't rooted in anything sexual, only in my desire to be sexual. Then, when I was 10, I had to pee really badly once on a car trip. It went on for almost an hour. And when I finally got to pee in this dirty little gas station, I was so exciting, I moaned. I moaned as I peed. I couldn't believe it. I was moaning in a Texaco station in the middle of Louisiana. <laughs> I realized right then that moans are connected with not getting what you want right away, with putting things off. I realized moans were best when they caught you by surprise. They came out of this hidden, mysterious part of you that was speaking its own language. I realized that moans were, in fact, that language. I became a moaner. It made most men anxious. <laughs> Frankly, they were terrified. I was loud, and they couldn't concentrate on what they were doing. <laughs> they'd lose focus. Then they'd lose everything. We couldn't make love in people's homes. The walls were too thin. I got a reputation in my building, and people stared at me with contempt in the elevator. <coughs> Men thought I was too intense. Some called me insane. I began to feel bad about moaning. I got quiet and polite. I made noise into a pillow. I learned to choke my moan, hold it back like a sneeze. I began to get headaches and stress-related disorders. I was becoming hopeless. And then I discovered women. I discovered that most women loved my moaning. But more importantly, I discovered how deeply excited I got when other women moaned, when I could make other women moan. It became a kind of passion, discovering the key, unlocking the vagina's mouth, unlocking this voice, this wild song. I made love to quiet women, and I found this place inside them, and they shocked themselves in their moaning. 
I made love to moaners, and they found a more deeper, penetrating moan. I became obsessed. I longed to make women moan, to be in charge like a conductor or maybe a band leader. It was a kind of surgery, a kind of delicate science, finding the tempo, the home of the moan. That's what I called it. Sometimes I found it over a woman's jeans. Sometimes I snuck up on it off the record, quietly disarming the surrounding alarms and moving in. Sometimes I used force, but not violent, oppressing force. No, more like dominating. I'm going to take you someplace. Don't worry, lay back, enjoy the ride kind of force. <laughs> Sometimes it was simply mundane. I found the moan before things even started, while we were eating salad or chicken, just casual, right here with my fingers. Here it is, all mixed in with the balsamic vinegar. <laughs> Sometimes I use props. I love props. Sometimes I made the woman find her own moan in front of me. I waited. I stuck it out until she opened herself. I wasn't fooled by those minor, more obvious moans. No, no, no. I pushed her further all the way into her power moan. Now, there's the clip moan. Eh? Eh? <laughs> the vaginal moan. Oh. 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 The combo clit vaginal moan. He. Oh. He. Oh. 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 There's the pre moan. Uh, 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 uh. The almost moan. Uh, 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 uh. The right on it moan. Oh. predator-in-chief moan. <laughs> Are you ready? That rousing celebration of femaleness you just heard was Eve Ensler on 20 Years of the Vagina Monologues at Antidote 2017. If you like this podcast, we'll be dropping another live recording from Antidote next week. Coming up, we have kindness advocate Kirsten Sherling, political writer Shashi Tharoor, and a panel on creating online chaos. Subscribe to Ideas at the House and other Sydney Opera House podcasts. You'll find us on your favourite podcast app. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.